So I invite you to return to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, as we continue this morning with our, our series in Luke. It's great to be in the Gospels, isn't it? I hope so. It's not a good sign if it isn't. I don't know if anyone can hear me or not. Yeah, I think so. I see some smiles. I was about to check to see if the light, the mic was on. We're going to begin this morning with verse 5 and read through verse 17. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink, drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning, Father. We pray that you would meet us here in this place, Father. That, Father, you would meet us in our hearts, that you would meet us at our heart's eye, that you would meet us at our heart's ear, that we would see and hear, Father, uh, from Christ Jesus this morning, Lord, that, Father, you would awaken our hearts afresh with the Holy Spirit. Teach us, O Lord, opening your word to our hearts, and opening our hearts, O oh, Father, to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Last week we began our study in Luke, and we began with the first four verses. And really in the, 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 the very first verse, we, as I pointed out last week, we, we get insight like no other place in the New Testament. We get some insight in the methodology, if you will, in writing a gospel. Luke says that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, with these words, as I pointed out last week, when Luke says things that have been accomplished among us, Luke is presupposing in that uh, comment that there's a plan behind this. You don't speak that way unless there's a plan uh, this plan that's undergirding these things, uh, this plan has been accomplished is what Luke is saying. And furthermore, 
the apostles have been preaching this accomplishment. They've been, they been going around, and from the Scriptures, they've been showing that Jesus is the Christ. Now, mind you, from the Scriptures. From what Scriptures? It would be from the Old Testament Scriptures. It would be from the Hebrew Bible. That's where the plan was. That's where the plan was recorded. And they're preaching these things, and people are deciding, listen, we need to write this, we need to write this stuff down. And what does Luke say? Luke says in verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. And this, of course, is for the benefit of the church. He's writing an orderly account. Now, we don't have to guess what his purpose is, and thank goodness for that. Because when you're studying, when you're studying literature, when you're studying literature, it's always good to know what the purpose is. It's always good to know what is the reason for the writing of this book. Luke makes it really clear to us, and such it's, it, it couldn't be more clear. Verse four: He has written these things so that we might have certainty. Now, who wouldn't want certainty? Do you want certainty that when you pass from this life into the next, that you'll go into the arms of Jesus? I hope you do. Can we have certainty? Many answer no. There's many people who will answer that question no. And there's many people who will go so far as to say that it's arrogant to say that you could answer this question with certainty. But what is Luke doing? Luke is laboring. In Luke's opinion, we can have certainty. But this isn't left just to Luke's opinion, is it? Because Luke, as he writes, he is writing under the supervision of the Holy Spirit, right? He's writing under the supervision of the Holy Spirit. Now, how is Luke going to bring this certainty about? Well, in verse 5, notice that Luke says, in the days of Herod. Now, what's, what's remarkable about that? Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say once upon a time in a far, far away land, there lived a prince. Um, it doesn't start that way, does it? Notice that Luke is pointing to a specific time. What specific time? He's pointing to the days of Herod. Who was Herod? We know a little bit about Herod. We know that enough about Herod to know that he was a monster. You know, we have a, a record of some of his monstrosity in Matthew. What does Matthew record for us? After Jesus is born, the Magi come from the east to seek him who is born king of the Jews. And when they come to seek him who is born king of the Jews, they inquire in Jerusalem and word gets around to Herod. Hey, there's some characters looking for someone who's been born king of the Jews. Now, is Herod excited about that? No. He tells the, the, the Magi, listen, you know, when you find him, send word to me so that I can join you in worshiping him. But uh, Herod has no intentions of uh, worshiping Jesus. He has every intention of destroying him. And when the Magi are warned by the Lord not to return back to Herod, and Herod realizes he's being duped uh, by the wise man, he becomes furious, and he orders the slaughter of all of those baby boys in that region, two years and younger. What kind of person could order the slaughter of all of these baby boys? Herod the Great. Herod the Great. And it's in the days of Herod the Great. He, he was a real, a real historical figure who lived in a particular time. Historians tell us anywhere between 37 and 40 B.C. In my library, there are books that say 37. There are books that say 40. I don't know which is which. 
37, between 37 and 40 B.C., he began to reign. And he reigned where everyone agrees to 4 B.C., so sometime in that time frame. And it was going to be later in that time frame, of course, sometime later in that time frame. And here we see it's in a specific place. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Notice we don't only have a specific time, but we also have a specific place. A specific place. Now, uh, why is that important? It's important because what Luke is telling us about is a real historical event that happened in real time and in real space. That's the point of this. And Luke actually uh, proves himself to be quite the historian. As you go through Luke's gospel, you'll see over and over again where he's pointing to specific historical times, specific historical places. Why? Because he's laboring that we may have certainty concerning the things that have been accomplished. So it is in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there's a priest, a real particular priest, a man named Zechariah. Now, we know he tells us that Zechariah was of the division of Abijah. And here we see how meticulous Luke is. I mean, he could have just simply said he was a priest. But Luke adds that he was a priest of the division of Abijah. Now, what, what is significant about that? What, what does that mean? Well, some of you may be familiar with under King David's reign, King David organized the priesthood into divisions. In fact, he organized them into 24 divisions. And the priests were to minister in the temple for two weeks of the year. So you have 24 divisions, each ministering for two weeks of the year. There's 48 weeks of the year. Now, the other weeks, the remaining weeks of the year, would be tended to with the various feasts and the pilgrimages, such as Passover, for example. So here we have these divisions, these 24 divisions. And if you, if you look at uh, first, you don't need to turn there, but if you turn to First Chronicles 24, I think it's around verse 10 somewhere, uh, you'll discover that Abijah is the eighth division. And what Luke is telling us is here is Zechariah. He was part of the eighth division of Abijah. And that he had a, uh, a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So here we have a real, a real priest and his wife. And in verse 6, notice what is said about them. We are told that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Let's pay careful attention to that. Because when the Holy Spirit superintends the writing of Scripture, he doesn't waste words. And these words are very important into understanding what's going on here on many fronts, not just this morning, but as we continue on. Notice the high accolades that are given to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Are, are they being said to be sinless? Does it mean that they were sinless? No. No one is sinless save Christ Jesus. But they're what is said is that they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? What that means is this. They were careful to align their lives by the word of God. And they weren't doing it in any kind of legalistic fashion because then the Lord wouldn't have given these high accolades. Because we know he's not pleased by that. No, this comes from the heart, from their very heart. What, what made Zechariah and Elizabeth tick was this. They wanted to live, and they wanted to live before God, and they wanted to live in a way that was pleasing to God. And they did their best to do that. Were they perfect? No. We're going to see next week. We won't get to it this week, but we'll see next week. 
that Zechariah was not a perfect man. But notice the accolades given to him. He's a man who the scriptures refer to as blameless. The scriptures only refer to a handful of people that way, by the way. Only a handful. He's blameless. Him and his wife, Elizabeth. In verse 7, we're told they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Now, there's a word we need to hold on to, and that's the word barren. The word barren. That is a key. I, I'm just, the more I study this passage, the more I'm convinced that is a, a key word in this passage and what the Lord is up to in this particular passage, and that's the word barren. What does the word barren mean? What does it suggest? Well, for Elizabeth to be barren, what that means is that her womb has not produced any children. And we could say in this sense that there is a kind of a lifelessness aspect to it in that way. Sometimes when we think of barren, you might think of a, a desert, a barren wasteland, if you will. Uh, what is a barren wasteland or a barren desert? It's a place that doesn't sustain life, isn't it? It's a place where there's not a lot of life or there hardly is any life at all. It's a place where life cannot prosper or flourish or even uh, be sustained. And to the ancients, as we, when we were studying the life of Abraham and Sarah, you'll recall that to the ancients, this is one of the worst things that a, a young woman or a woman of any age can endure is to be without children. Um, this, was the, uh, this was one of the greatest fears for, for, um, for any woman, to be without children, to be barren. And, and, and to further this, it was often believed by the ancients that if you were barren, it was the result of some kind of personal sin, that you were being cursed by God for some kind of personal sin, so that there was this reproach, this scorn, you know, when you walk in a room, you know, the people are in the corner. Hey, look who's in here. Oh, yeah. What's oh, yeah. You know, that business, you know, for your whole life. In fact, if you look at verse 24 and 25, you'll see this. After these days, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me, and he's taken, a taken away my what? My reproach among the people. Now, it was falsely deduced that she was barren because of some particular sin. You see why it's so important the Holy Spirit would add that they're, they're, they're blameless. They're blameless before the Lord. They're, they're righteous before the Lord. Her barrenness was not the result of a curse because of some sin that she had committed in the past or some sin that she was living in. No, that was not the point of it at all. But nevertheless, she was bearing the scorn. Now, in verse 8, while Zechariah was serving as priest, we're told that his division is on duty. And according to the customhood of the priesthood, verse 9, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, what's going on here is, you're, some of you will be aware, that every morning and afternoon or evening, incense would be burned in the temple in actually the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. You remember the temple, you had a... You went into the outer courtyard, and then beyond the courtyard, you went into the first room of the, the temple proper, and there was the holy place. And then beyond that was the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Um, they would enter into the first room uh, in the morning and afternoon or early evening, and they would burn incense before the Lord. And the incense was symbolic of the prayers of Israel going forth to the Lord. And this was a duty that was done uh, daily. 
And under King David, he, there, there were more priests available than there was opportunity to do this. So under David, the priesthood was divided into 24 divisions, if you will. And uh, every two weeks, a division was, uh, was chosen. And uh, for that period of time, a priest would be chosen by lot. So what this meant was uh, it would be very rare for a priest to ever uh, be called upon to do this more than once. In fact, many priests would never be called upon to offer incense in the holy place. So to be chosen by lot to offer this incense in the holy place would, would, would really amount to being the, really the, the high mark of your career as a priest. This would, be the, this would be the greatest privilege that you would have in terms of your priesthood to go into the holy place and offer incense. And we're told here that Zechariah is chosen on this particular time, and uh, he is chosen to burn incense. And in verse 10, we get a picture of what's going on. You know, it, really how this worked was three priests would enter into the, into the holy place, and then two of the priests would withdraw, leaving one priest behind, and he would offer the incense, and then he would pray for the welfare and salvation of Israel while all the others are gathered out into the courtyard area and are, of course, joining uh, in prayer. And as this is taking place, in uh, verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And in verse 12, Zechariah reacts the way the, the people of God always react when they come into contact with heavenly beings like this. We know this heavenly being is Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. Only two angels in Scripture are named. Gabriel is one of them. Uh, here's this mighty angel. And Zechariah, he, he fell down in fear, of course. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. Now, this is absolutely breathtaking. Now, why am I saying this is breathtaking? Because when Zechariah walks into that temple, he walks into that temple in a period that we call a period of prophetic silence. God has not spoken to his people in more than 400 years. The last utterance that God has given to his people is recorded for us in Malachi. God has not spoken to his people in 400 years. And when Zechariah walks into that temple and is met by Gabriel, God breaks over 400 years of prophetic silence in that moment. An era ends right there with the first word that's uttered out of the lips of Gabriel. And what does Gabriel say? God has broken his silence. And what does Gabriel say? Gabriel says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And if you look down to verse 16, we're told that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In other words, John is going to be a forerunner of the Lord, isn't he? He's going to be a forerunner of he who is to come. 
And his assignment is going to be to turn the hearts of the people to the Lord their God. Now, let's think about that for a moment. What is being presupposed in that comment? If the hearts of many of the children of Israel need to be turned towards the Lord, then what direction are those hearts facing? They're facing away from the Lord. They're facing away from the Lord. In fact, um, we, we can conclude quite easily, we can conclude by the amount of synagogues there were in the ancient uh, church that there were many people who didn't go to church. How can we conclude that? Well, if everybody went to church, the buildings couldn't handle them all. You, you realize if everybody in Chester got up this morning and went to church, we'd have a problem. You want to know what the problem would be? It would be a wonderful problem, but there'd be people out on the sidewalk. We couldn't get them all in here. We couldn't get them all in all of the buildings that are open. We wouldn't be able to get them all in. Were there people in, in Zechariah's day who weren't going to church? Yeah. Why? Why weren't they going to church? For the same reason that we don't go to church. When we don't go to church, why? we don't go to church. Why? Because the world has a hold of our hearts. That's why. That's the reason. Let's not make it more complicated than that. The world's reigning in our hearts. As unbelievers, the world reigns in our hearts. What are we concerned about? We're concerned about the concerns of the world. We're concerned about the riches of the world, the treasures of the world, the cares of the world. And when they reign supreme, this is not where we're usually found. Were there people in that day in that kind of shape? Yeah. Undoubtedly, there were many who were living lives of prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Absolute prayerlessness. I can think of a period in my time before I come to Christ Jesus where I lived largely prayerless. Oh, you know, when trouble comes down the pike, you're busy praying. You know, when you have a loved one who is uh, ill, then you're not sure how the things are going to turn out. Well, then you get busy praying, you know, and, and the, the lives of the ancients, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Uncle Jeremiah is not doing so good. We need to keep him in our prayers. Okay, well, it's time to pray. Or there hasn't been any rain in three weeks and the garden's about dried up. It's about destroyed. Well, we're going to be busy praying then. You know, but what about as soon as rain comes? Well, back to business as usual. Because the heart is turned away from the Lord, isn't it? The heart is turned away from the Lord. And undoubtedly, there were many tongues that were chained. What do I mean by tongues being chained? Your tongue is chained to your mouth. In many ways, your tongue is barren when your heart is turned away from the Lord. What do, what do I mean by that, a tongue being barren? Well, the New Testament tells us that praise and worship is the fruit of the lips. And when the lips refuse or are unable to worship and endure the Lord with words and speech of praise or songs of praise or worship of praise, well, then them lips are barren. They're not producing any fruit. They're lifeless. They're unable to utter a word of, of praise or worship to the Lord. The tongue is almost like it's fettered, like it's chained down. It can't speak. It can't communicate uh, because the heart is turned away from the Lord. The Lord can be used as a cuss word or a swear word easily enough, but to try to praise the Lord, to use his name as a word of praise. Well, no, that the tongue is chained. It's unable to do that. Now, you know... Before we continue on, I mean, obviously there's an application. I've been largely speaking about things that are going on outside of these four walls, but I think that I, think that I probably ought to make some application inside 
If there's someone who listens to this message later down the road who's yet to come to faith, they might think that we're standing in here somehow pointing, um, pointing judgmental fingers at everybody who's outside of us. No, no, this applies to us as well. Think about how we, think about yesterday afternoon, were we busy calling on the Lord to prepare our hearts to worship the Lord? Were we busy doing that yesterday? How about this morning? Were we busy doing that this morning? Were we asking the Lord, Lord, prepare our hearts to meet with you? When we uh, opened with the the opening scripture passage, were our hearts 100% open before the Lord? Lord, edify my heart with the reading of your word. Give me everything that's in your word and open up my heart, O Lord, to your word. Open it up. And as I prayed this morning in the pastoral prayer, were, were we in one accord praying for these things, praying for the needs of others, just as if they're our own, or were our minds wandering around? And how about when we were singing? Were we more caught up in the melody than the lyrics? Were we truly lifting up the lyrics of what we sung? Were we truly lifting it up to the Lord as if it was a prayer? How about when we come to the table here in a little bit? When we come to the Lord's table, are we in one accord? Are we going to be, are we going to be laying our hearts bare before the Lord and saying, Lord, feed us? Are we going to be doing that? Um, or, are we, or are we in some sense going through the motions? I think I hear someone praying right now. I'm just using that as a figure of speech. I can't hear you praying. I can only hear you praying if you're praying out loud, but I know some of you, and I know right now you're convicted by this because I'm convicted by this. And you're praying, Lord, this is, this is not right. This is not right. There's a, there's a certain section of my heart that's barren before you. There's a barrenness about me. You see, the problem that they had in Zechariah's uh, day is the same problem we have in our day, isn't it? Now, we come in here on, on the Lord's Day, and sometimes we come in here with, heart, with hearts that are they're just like they, we just took them out of the freezer and put them in our chest and brought them in here. Or maybe we didn't get them out of the freezer. Maybe it's not quite that bad. We got them out of the refrigerator. But if there's anybody, you know, before I move on too, you know, this is another thought that just occurred to me. If there's anybody here thinking, if there's anybody in here that's thinking, well, you know, I'm glad you're not talking about me because my heart's 100% for you. Oh my goodness. If that thought has occurred to you, then, you're, then, 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 then we would be like the Pharisee that says, oh Lord, I thank you that you haven't made me like these other guys. How convicting this can be. What can possibly warm our hearts? Look at verse 16. He, who is he? That is John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Do you see the grace in that passage? While everyone's hearts are tending to to the things that God has given them and loving the things that God has given them more than they love God, God is nevertheless standing before them being faithful and saying, you know, I have a deep concern for you even though you hate me. Even though right now you're treating me with hatred, you're treating me with indifference, you're opposing me in so many ways, I have a deep concern for you. 
And I have such a deep concern for you that I am going to send a forerunner for you to prepare you for the greatest gift that, I'm, that I could ever give you, the gift of my son. Oh, now we start to feel our hearts warming up, don't we? We start to feel our hearts warming up. Now, a mere man cannot turn the hearts of, of the people to the Lord. A mere man a mere man cannot turn the heart of anybody. He can't turn his own heart to the Lord, nor can he turn the hearts of others to the Lord. A mere man cannot do that. But look at verse 15. In verse 15, Gabriel tells Zechariah, your boy's going to be great. What parent doesn't want to hear that? Your boy's going to be great. He's going to be great because he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So you see, John isn't going to be operating simply as a mere man, but he's going to be a man who is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, can the Holy Spirit turn the hearts of people to the Lord their God? Absolutely. But what's interesting about this passage is the Holy Spirit is using means to do that. He uses a human agency to do that, doesn't he? We'll say more about that. If we continue our study, and I'm toying with the idea of continuing in Luke, and maybe having it go side by side with some other things. But if we continue that and we get to, Gen we get to Luke chapter 3, we're going to see that in a whole other way. But for now, what is happening? The hearts are turned away from the Lord. Even the people that are gathering into the synagogues, their hearts are only halfway there. Hearts are mixed with all this lukewarmness and mixed with all of this stuff, barren in so many ways. And where is the Lord in this? He's standing before everybody with deep concern and saying, you know what? I'm going to send John and I'm going, to, I'm going to fill him with the Holy Spirit. And by the agency of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to start turning. I'm going to start turning these hearts. I'm going to start turning. No, the Holy Spirit will turn barrenness to life and joy. He'll turn that barrenness into life and joy. If you look at verse 14. If you look at verse 14, what does Gabriel say to Zechariah? You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And if you look back to verse 13, um, he says in verse 13, Gabriel says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now, let's tease that out. I think the most beautiful thing in this whole passage, and there's a lot of beauty in this passage, but I think one of the most beautiful things in this passage is this. And we have to get to it by asking a couple of questions. One question is, what prayer, what prayer is Gabriel talking about? Now, on the surface, what does it appear? It appears that maybe John is in the temple and he's praying for a son. But would, or I'm sorry, Zechariah is in the temple and he's praying for a son. But would Zechariah be doing that? I'm going to answer no. Why am I answering no? Because it seems to be the context. I mean, he, okay, he's, he's in there. We know he's praying. And then, and then Gabriel says, well, your prayer's been answered. You're going to have a son. I don't think Zechariah is in there praying for a son. Why? That wasn't his duty. It wasn't his duty. When, when, you know, he's chosen by lot to go into the temple. What is his duty? His duty isn't to go in there with personal prayers and lift up personal things. His, his mind is not to be on him and Elizabeth. His mind's to be on the people of Israel. It's the duty of the priest to go in and pray for the salvation and the welfare of Israel. And we're already told that Zechariah is righteous, that they follow the commandments of the Lord. So that's why I think it's so important that we take heed of that. 
He's a man who would have went in and he would have done what is pleasing to the Lord. He's not a man who would have went in and, and, and squandered this opportunity and squandered this opportunity uh, in order to uh, use it on personal means. He wouldn't have done that. He would have went in and he would have prayed, Oh Lord, I pray for the salvation and the welfare of my people. Redeem Israel. Peace Welfare, prosperity upon Israel. And then Gabriel says to him, curiously, he says, your prayer's been answered. You're going to have a son. Well, how does that fit? Here's where we see the real beauty of the Lord. The Lord is going to answer a prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth probably haven't prayed for in years. Zechariah and Elizabeth are elderly. Do you think that they have continued to pray for children? Do you think in their elderly years they're continuing to pray for children? My, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say after a period of time when they reached a certain age, they said, okay, Lord, uh, I'm resolved. Uh, th this is your will. And I say this out of personal experience. Tammy and I have prayed for children. We've had one miscarriage. After years of praying for a child, I can say out of personal experience, when you reach a certain age, you say, okay, Lord, this is not your will. This is what we would like, but this is not your will. Well, your will is perfect. Your will is pleasing. Even in the miscarriage, in the pain of that miscarriage, it was not the Lord's will, but his will is perfect. His will is pleasing. We will meet that child one day. We will meet that child one day in the very near future. That is God's perfect will. I think Zechariah and Elizabeth gave up on that prayer. I don't, think, I, think, I don't think they so much gave up on that prayer as they were resolved. Lord, this is not your will. But here's what the Lord is doing. This is what I'm convinced he's doing. And this really shows the heart and magnifies the heart of the Lord. What is the Lord doing? He is answering a prayer, the fervent prayer of their youth, a prayer that is so dear to them, a prayer that is so desirous of them. He is answering that prayer and he is taking the answer of that prayer and he is custom serving it up as the answer to the current prayer that Zechariah is praying for. Isn't that beautiful? Do you see what I'm trying to communicate? I don't think Zechariah's in there praying for a child. I don't think it even occurred to him to pray for a child. He's an old man. Without the empowerment of God, how would they raise a child? How would they take care of a child? But the Lord says, you're going to have a child. What? No, you're going to have a child. And not only are you going to have a child, but this child actually is the answer to the, the, the salvation that you're praying for. When, when we lift our desires to the Lord, and we lift our hearts to the Lord, and we lift our dreams to the Lord, and we lift our wishes to the Lord, these things don't fall on deaf ears. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he says that the Lord has this big storehouse full of all those prayers, and he has them right there before him, and they're fresh on his mind always, you know? And the psalmist tells us, listen, seek the Lord your God, and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. That's what's happening with Zechariah right here, isn't it? And you're going to have a son. And here's how this is all going to fit, Zechariah. Your, your son's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to use him. And the Holy Spirit's going to begin turning the hearts of 
of Israel to uh, to me. And what ultimately is the Lord up to? I would submit what the Lord's up to is turning the barrenness into life and joy. That's what he's up to. What could be more relevant to our day than that? You know, we study these old texts and people will say, what could an old text have to do with me? Well, you know what? Here we are in Chester, West Virginia. And I got to tell you, I mean, you don't have to be real on the ball, real with it to realize in terms of spirituality, it's a desert wasteland around here, isn't it? I don't mean any disrespect to anybody, but it's a desert wasteland around here. But here we have a great text that gives us encouragement. He's turning barrenness into life. And he's doing this through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will turn our hearts to Christ. And the Holy Spirit will open eyes. The Holy Spirit will open ears. As we think about our own barrenness, let's start with ourselves before we look anywhere else. As we think about ourselves coming in here, what do I spend some moments talking about? Talking about different areas of our heart that are barren. As we come in here, we can all conceive. We can all conceive of being more excited to be in the Lord's house. We can all conceive of being more excited to have the scriptures opened up. We can all conceive of being more excited to pray. We can all uh, conceive of all of these disciplines being more exciting to us. I mean, just think about how the phone has taken over our lives. Some of us can't stay off of our phone for 20 minutes. Could you imagine if you couldn't stay out of your Bible for 20 minutes? What a difference that would make in your life. Well, someone might say, well, that's great if that can only take place. Well, I'm going to submit to you that it can take place. Why can't it take place? You tell me, why can't that take place? The same Holy Spirit that was empowering John is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in you if you're in Christ Jesus this morning. If you're not in Christ Jesus this morning, then why not? What are you waiting for? I heard one preacher one time say, well, you're waiting for a better sermon. I don't have a better sermon. This is it. This is the best sermon you're going to get, so come today, okay? And I'll try to make them all worse after this one. Um, I don't have a better sermon. Why would we want to wait another day if you're not in Christ Jesus? What do you, why, why? We'll say, well, you know, I still kind of like, I like my sin and stuff. You know what? The Holy Spirit can fix that. See, I want to tell you about the Holy Spirit. See, he can fix that. Here's how you get it fixed. You say, Lord, I'm going to be honest with you. I come to you, but I love my sin. But then, you know, you can look at Luke, and you see there was this one who came, John. His name was John. He was a forerunner of Christ, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was his role? His role was to prepare the heart for the Lord. His role was to turn the hearts of many to the people of God. We well, see it's the work of the Holy Spirit that turns our hearts to God. We come in here this morning, I, I, I could manifold the application. You see where the application is going? We come in here this morning, our hearts are cold, our hearts are sluggish. Maybe we had to talk ourselves even coming this morning. How do we fix that? You don't fix it on your own. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's what Luke is introducing us to have you ever noticed that? Like in the beginning, like I think, I think we are so used to reading Luke and getting to the infancy narratives of Christ that we forget that before Jesus is introduced, before Jesus is born, Luke is introducing us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever seen that? I mean, I think because like 
Christmas comes and goes and Christmas comes and goes and Christmas comes and goes. We're like, you know what? Let's just run through chapter 1 really fast. Let's, you know, let's look at the, let's get to verse 26 and let's look and soak that up. And then let's get through this John the Baptist stuff and let's get to chapter 2 with the birth of Jesus. And sometimes preaching actually helps that. Especially when, okay, this morning it's Christmas time, so we're going to go to chapter 2 and uh, we're going to skip chapter 1. I'm not saying that that is always wrong. Sometimes there's times I've done that before as I've done guest, as I've done guest preaching and I've gone into churches. Okay, I wasn't there last week to do chapter 1. I'm only here this week and it's Christmas time, so we're going to do chapter 2. But in many ways, that kind of conditions us over time to skip through chapter 1. But in chapter 1, we're introduced to the work of the Holy Spirit. Do we tell people about the work of the Holy Spirit? Luke does. I'm going to tell you about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I understand. You love your alcohol. You love your drugs. You love your gambling. You love all that stuff. That's fine. The Holy Spirit can change that for you. He can make you to love the things that don't harm you. Just call on him and ask him to do it. It's a prayer that he loves to hear. How often, how often does he hear it? It's a prayer that he loves to hear. In fact, the fact is if you find yourself praying that prayer, then there's a pretty good chance the Holy Spirit has already got to you because he's influencing you to pray the prayer. We need to be agents of the Holy Spirit, don't we? To turn this barrenness. What is going to turn this barrenness? You look out these windows. What is going to turn that barrenness into life and joy in Christ Jesus? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit has to open our eyes to behold Jesus. The Holy Spirit has to open up our ears to hear his voice. The Holy Spirit has to give us a new heart so that we can praise him. But this is the work that he loves to do. The devil would have us to believe, wow, the Holy Spirit just doesn't want to do it. He don't want to do it. Don't call on him to do it because he don't want to do it because he's tired of people telling him no. And he doesn't want to. You know what? I think we ought to start calling on him to do it. Are we going to wait for unbelievers to call on the Holy Spirit to do it? I don't think that will ever happen, will it? We're to do it. Oh, Father, when was the last time you prayed for the Lord? To transform Chester, to transform Chester into, uh, into a place of spiritual life. When was the last time you prayed for that? Or East Liverpool, for that matter. Or Selineville. Or Wellsville. Or Hulkstown. One thing, that I, the one thing that I've noticed about prayer meetings, and I've led so many prayer meetings, and this is actually, this, it actually grieves me, but very rarely do I ever take a prayer request at a prayer meeting where someone says, you know, I've been ministering to uh, a person who I don't want to name, but I would, just, I would just like you to pray that the Holy Spirit would open up their eyes and open up their hearts. Most of the prayer requests concern a surgery that's coming up or they concern a, uh, some kind of health concern. And listen, I'm always reluctant to say this because I don't want anyone to think, okay, um, I got this prayer concern and it's health-related. I don't want you to think to have any inhibition to share that in a prayer meeting. We want to pray for those things at prayer meetings. But listen, everyone. There is a barrenness in our prayer life that needs to change. We come to these prayer meetings, and a lot of times I'm convinced that we don't even come into these prayer meetings with a desire to pray for the lost. We come, when we think of prayer meeting, our mind immediately goes to sick and health concerns or financial concerns. And what does that say about us? It says that there's an incredible barrenness um, in our actual theology. 
Do we realize that when a person dies apart from Christ that they slip into an eternity of destruction apart from the Lord God, never to be able to return? Do we realize that true life doesn't even begin until a person comes to know Jesus Christ? Do we realize that cancer is not the worst thing that a person can hear? Do we realize that? What are heads? We say, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, think, I suppose the worst thing a person could hear is depart from me for I never knew you. That's the worst thing you can hear. Well, why doesn't that scare us as much as cancer does? Because there's a barrenness in our heart that has to change. There's an area of our heart. There's a part of our theology that is highly and severely flawed. And Luke is turning us. He's, he's opening that up to our minds. We've got to change. We've got to change that. I have to change that. We all have to change that. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the fact that even when our hearts are turned away from you, and Father, our hearts, are, our hearts it, I, think it, I think it has been sufficiently proven that our hearts are turned away from you in so many ways. But Father, we are comforted this morning that as our hearts are turned away from you, there we see in the text, we see what kind of God you are. We see what kind of Father you are. You are Father who nevertheless is standing among us, dwelling among us with deep concern for us. And you've given us Luke's gospel and you've given us chapter one. And you have led us this morning to study chapter one where we see, whoa, barrenness, whoa, the work of the Holy Spirit. Whoa, hello. Oh, Father, we so thank you that, Lord, you have spoken to us in this way through your word. Oh, Father, create in us, create in us a deep concern, O oh Lord, for the lost who are all around us everywhere. And, oh, Father, may the words depart me, for I never knew you. May that, may that, may that be more fearful to us than cancer. May that be the worst thing that we can think of. May that be the worst possible prognosis that, that anybody could hear. Oh, Father, I believe that really we would really see transformation as, as we come to embrace these things, as we come to love these things, as we love all the other finer aspects of theology, Father. I fear that we're missing this. So, Father, we, we look to you this morning, and we call on you this morning for this work, and we are greatly encouraged because we know that it is your good pleasure, O oh, Father, to teach us. It's your good pl pleasure to reform us and to make us like Christ Jesus. So, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.